welcome to the Awakening Church podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. This morning, we are um, continuing our series on the mountain of God. It's a worship series. And this is what we said last week, that worship um, is the natural activity of the soul. Worship is fundamentally what we do as humans. And here's what worship is, because I think we don't understand it kind of in this terminology. Worship is simply a response. It is a response to what we adore and value most. And so if you are ever wondering, what is it that I worship? (laughs) Just simply look at what you value and what you adore most. That's what you worship. And so where you look and see where you're spending your time and your energy, your money, where you're giving your passion, your desires, your dreams, that's what you worship. And for some this morning, you've never put words to it, but if we looked at what you adore and um, pursue after, you worship success. It's the God of Silicon Valley, really, success at all costs. Uh, You worship perhaps um, your family or perhaps your kids and maybe it's a person in your life. There's a relationship and and you just adore the ground that they walk on and all your time and energy goes there. For others, it's just freedom to do whatever you want, whenever you want. It's pleasure. It's just all about me and gratifying my desires significance or influence or recognition. See, worship is the natural activity of the soul, and this gives us a cue to why we are here and what our purpose is, because we were created to worship God. You were designed and created to worship the God of the heavens. In fact, said another way, there is a longing in your soul that will only be satisfied on the mountain of God. Until God becomes your everything, you will begin to search for anything to fill the void inside. And so, it is on the mountain of God, meeting with the one for whom your heart was made for, where we are experiencing peace and joy and life. It is in worshiping God that we actually experience our purpose in life. And so we asked this question last week, how do we return to that which we were created for? How do we worship God? And last week we left Moses off, and if you uh, are new to joining us, you can uh, listen to it online. We left uh, Moses, the great leader and liberator of the nation of Israel, at 80 years of age, he was wandering in the desert with a bunch of sheep, and he has this burning bush moment, literally, not like figuratively, like I had this burning bush moment. We don't really use that anymore, but literally had a burning bush moment where God meets him on the far side of the wilderness. When he's far away from home, when he's wandering and lonely, God meets him there in the middle of the barren desert land. And we said this, you may feel like or be on the far side of the wilderness, but you're never far from the mountain of God. I don't know where you walked in this morning, 
But perhaps you walked in lonely. Perhaps you walked in tired. Maybe you walked in discouraged. Maybe, maybe there's just a sense of like, I walked in feeling like a failure. You've walked in disillusioned. Maybe you're even feeling like I'm wounded and distant from God. Or maybe I'm just running from God. Here's the reality of God's word for you is that though you feel like you're on the far side of the wilderness, you are not far from the mountain of God. God is lovingly pursuing you even now in this moment. And so, and so Moses sees this burning bush on the far side of the wilderness. He looks at it, and last week we talked about it, it was the ordinary burning bush, right? And he sees this bush, and he goes like, huh, it's not burning up. I'm going to go over and see what's happening. And from, it says, the text from within the bush, God calls out to him, Moses, Moses. is a sign of endearment and affection and friendship. God calls to him as Moses is approaching this burning bush, and here's what happens next. God says to Moses this one line, do not come any closer. Like, wait a second. The God who calls you close all of a sudden says, don't come any closer. The God who says, calls out your name with affection and tenderness and, and friendship says, says, hang on. Why would the God who wants to be close tell us not to come any closer? What's up with that? In fact, there's something happening here in this moment that Moses is unaware of. And I think for many of us, when we are approaching the mountain of God and encountering him, there's something going on that we are unaware of. So God actually gives Moses an explanation and some instructions. He's going to give him some instructions. Hey, don't come any closer. You need to do something. And here's the reason why you need to do them. God says this. He says, don't come any closer. Take off your sandals. For the place where you're standing is holy ground. Okay, Moses is in the process of approaching this burning bush. God's speaking to him, and all of a sudden God says, stop. He's like, okay, thank you very much. And he says, take off your sandals. And taking off one's shoes in the ancient Near East was a sign of honor and humility and respect. Much as it is today uh, in... um, in the east still. And we get this in our world. We have certain homes that you take off your shoes because you don't want to bring the dirt and grime of the day into that house. Anybody who has babies is this way. They're like, no, 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 take off your shoe. My baby's crawling, putting a mouth on everything. Please take those off, okay, because it is holy ground. It's set apart for a baby here. And here's what's happening. Here's the reason the God who says, I want to be close with you. Don't come any closer. There's something happening that Moses was unaware of. It's that we must first recognize we're standing on holy grounds. We have to have this awareness that it is not just anyone we're talking to, anyone, just anyone we're singing to, but we are approaching a holy God on holy ground. One of the great tragedies, perhaps the greatest tragedy, I think, in the Western church here in America, is we have lost sight of the holiness of God. 
Our natural tendency is to bring God down into our level, bring him into manageable terms in a way that we can feel comfortable with God. And somehow we want to coerce God and make God more like us, as if God should adjust to us instead of us to him. See, Moses, he comes to the burning bush, and um, he didn't go like, yeah, that's a nice suggestion, God. Take off my shoes. No, I'm good. (laughs) I don't want to get my feet dirty. He recognized something sacred was happening. And I want you to notice this. The ground wasn't holy because it was some sacred place in and of itself. The ground was holy because a holy God showed up there. Let me say that again. The ground was holy and set apart because a holy God showed up there. Maybe an hour before that, I'm sure, there were billy goats running across that ground. Maybe a stray dog ran around and maybe used the bathroom in the corner. Who knows what was going on? But all of a sudden, God showed up in that moment, and the ground is holy. And as a result, there is a way that we position ourselves before a holy God that we have lost sight of. Well, the question is, well, what does it mean that God is holy? Because this idea of holiness it has completely been lost in our church. Well, the word holy literally means to be set apart, uh, unique or distinct, holy other or a cut above. And, and though we don't use this word a whole lot, we understand it in this term. We have things in our lives that are holy or set apart. Maybe you have uh, certain items that you only wear on special occasions. They're holy or set apart. I, as a kid, always wanted... Michael Jordan, Air Jordan's uh, shoes. I never got them. (laughs) However, this past Christmas, I got Curry's, which, um, in my estimation now, are far better than Air Jordan's. Yeah, I knew, I knew it, I knew it. My curries are holy to me. You see, they're holy because I I do not wear them on Sundays. Though they're comfortable, they're good-looking, awesome shoes. I don't wear them here. I wear these shoes. I wear these shoes every day. Uh, they're, They're holy because I don't even wear them around. I don't wear them outside even. They are holy, set apart only for the basketball court. That's it. That's the only place I wear my curries. And this is the idea as we begin to think about the holiness of God that completely set apart, unique, completely other. The word also carries the idea of purity and moral excellence. That holiness is not just this being set apart, but that there is this purity and moral excellence and wholeness. Like that's where we get it. It Completely whole. And all that's healthy in the universe is part of the holiness of God. All that's good and right and true is connected to his holiness. And we have relationships that are holy in this way. In fact, when I um, married and when Jenny and I first got married we made what's called a holy covenant. A covenant is a a relationship that says, man, I'm in it no matter what, 
and there's the way that we're going to act and behave. And we have made a decisions together where it is we a commitment of purity and moral excellence to one another emotionally. Like, this is a pure relationship, and emotionally, I'm not going to taint it and have any kind of emotional relationships that would be unholy or outside the bounds of our marriage. Of pure and moral excellence relationally and sexually. My holy relationship with my wife affects every other relationship in my life. The way I interact, the way I prioritize my time. The way I have friendships, in fact, with the opposite sex, because I want to make sure that I keep this relationship holy. See, holiness has two parts, set apart, and then this idea of purity and moral excellence. So when it comes to the holiness of God, let me give you a definition. God is completely set apart, wholly other from his creation. There is nothing or no one like him. He is distinctly unique. Our tendency when we think of God is to have this thought that God is just a better version of ourselves or the best version of humanity. No, no, no. He's holy, completely unique, distinct. In fact, what we know of God is only because of his self-revelation to us so that we would understand him. Not that we would pull him down into our world, but that we would begin to look up and begin to see him high and transcendent and almighty God, the holy, eternal other. Then he also, God's holiness refers to his majesty and absolute purity, encompassing all that is pure, whole, righteous, and healthy in the universe. And so unholiness is that is, which is unhealthy, that which is decaying or broken and pure. At its root, it's what sin is. And the holiness of God is the attribute of God that informs every other attribute or quality or characteristic of God. It is the only attribute that's uh, repeated three times in the Bible. We see it where the angels are crying out one to another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Listen to what R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, writes on this. He says, only once in sacred scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. Only once is a characteristic of God mentioned three times in succession. The Bible says that God is holy, holy, holy. All right, stay with me here. You ready? Not merely that he is holy or even holy, holy. He is, say it with me, holy, holy, holy. The Bible never says, check this, that God is love, 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 mercy, 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 or wrath, 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 or justice, justice, justice. It does say that he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is filled with his glory. To mention something to the three times in succession is to elevate it to the superlative degree, to attach to it emphasis of super importance. And so when we understand the nature and character of God, we are to understand that all of his attributes are holy. And so God's love for you is a holy love. God's justice is a holy justice. God's mercy is a holy 
mercy. And so, as we begin to approach the the mountain of God, and we begin to respond and worship, we begin to draw close to God, the God who says, you know what, hey, stop, don't come any closer. Here's why. We have to recognize that we're on holy ground, and the question we should be wrestling with is, how should I respond when I'm on holy ground? Like, what do I do? Because we are not familiar with this. Notice what Moses does next. He says, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Reverence is the only proper response before a holy God. Reverence. Listen, friends. God calls and makes you his friend. You don't call and make him your friend. He, he says... I am the agency in and of ourselves. We cannot somehow be friends with God because you're holy and you're mighty. And God says, no, no, I'm going to beckon you into this relationship, draw you into this relationship. When when Moses sees the burning bush and all this, he doesn't just go like, hey, man, cool, awesome. Thanks, God. What's up, man? Stoked that you invited me. Moses hid his face. He was afraid. He took off his sandals and responded in reverence. Reverence has been pushed out of our culture, hasn't it? We have an epidemic of casualness, an epidemic of dishonor, an an epidemic of just flippancy. We, We don't honor the past anymore. We don't honor our elders. We should really think about that. We don't honor leadership. Reverence is being pushed out of our culture, and yet there are glimpses and moments where we see this at play because I I think we struggle to really understand this idea of reverence, of honor, of respect. We see it when you go out to dinner. Hang with me here. Some of you are like, what? Um, We show reverence when we go to a fancy restaurant. Now, some of you have never been to a fancy restaurant. Let me explain. I've been to a couple, not too many, but a couple. When you go to a fancy restaurant, there is a way to dress at a fancy restaurant that is proper. There is a way of behaving that is proper. There's, There's a way of even eating that shows reverence. And they have all the utensils laid out in just the right way. And you have to know which one's the soup spoon and which one is the salad fork and which one is the dessert and all those sort of things. In fact, at some of these really fancy places, they say you can only eat here if you're wearing the proper attire. You have to be wearing a a sports coat. You need to be wearing a dress. You need to be wearing a coat and tie. Slacks. And you know what people do? They do all those things. Isn't that funny? Like no one goes, no, I'm not, no, forget it. Because there's something about that meal that is so amazing and so incredible that you're going, no, I, it deserves reverence. It deserves to be respected like this. And so I'm going to adjust and I'm going to approach this meal different than my ordinary everyday meals. I'm going to show up to this meal with my attire on. I'm going to have my best, you know, I'm going to sit and I'm not going to have my elbows on it. I, I'm going to be like, I'm not going to yell. I, because why? 
the environment determines our response to it. You're on holy grounds, and reverence is the only proper response. So when you worship God, friends, it is not a Taco Bell meal. It is a three-star Michelin restaurant moment with God. Now, thank you for the one amen in the room. I'm, I, feel like, I feel like that really went over well. Let me give you a definition for reverence and how we respond in reverence. Reverence is an overwhelming sense of awe. Like, oh my God. When you go to the ocean and you just capture the beauty and the wonder of God, or you go to the mountains, or, and, and at some point you just go like, whoa. Or you see the, the night sky and the heavenly host of stars on display, and you just go like, whoa, you are God. It's this overwhelming sense of awe, this sense of respect, of of realizing, okay, I, <laughs> I'm on your turf. You are God and I am not. I, like, I'm not going to somehow try to force my way. I'm coming to you and you get to call the shots. Wonder. Like awe, wonder is the fuel of worship. When you just, in, like, man, God, you are wonderful. Like, my imagination is just going crazy, and it can't even come close to declaring the beauty and the majesty and how wonderful you are and honor. Like, in who you are. <laughs> like, I want to honor you. Like, like, in light of who you are, I just can't wait. I want my words to be honoring to you. I want my thoughts to be honoring to you. I want my life to be honoring to you. Like, reverence is this overwhelming sense of awe and respect and wonder and honor. Notice this, originating from the interior of a person. It's not being forced down upon you like somehow be reverent. You must, it's like, no, no, no. I'm in, you ever been in the presence of something amazing or even awful? Like, it's not like being, you're just like, whoa, you are God. From your heart, most often expressed through a person's physical posture in the presence of the one who is majestic. Now, when we talk about reverence, one of the areas that we get tangled up on is this idea of fear. And even in the text here, didn't it say that Moses hid his face because he was afraid? And then you see throughout the Old Testament, and you see like in Proverbs where it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And you go like, okay, what is that about? What about the fear of the Lord? Does God want me to be afraid of him? How am I supposed to understand this? And let me uh, give you just two vantage points to understanding this. The first is this picture of an x-ray machine or a CT scan. With my concussions lately, I've, I've had CT scans, so I understand them. And a CT scan is this, is a machine that allows and examines the interior of who you are. It, it, it shoots these rays into you, and all of a sudden, you can see the unseen, invisible part, well, it's not invisible, but the unseen part of, your, of who you are. 
the broken, the disease, the tumor. It's what you can't see on the outside or assess, but it cuts down to the inside. God's holiness, and when we come before the holiness of God, acts like a CT scan or an x-ray machine. And And you might be looking around, and you might be thinking on the outside, I'm not that bad. I compare myself with Mary Jane or Joe Schmo over here. They're pretty bad. I feel pretty good about myself. And all of a sudden, you stand before a holy God, and his holiness comes down, and it exposes us. And exposes the things in our hearts and the things that are unhealthy and broken and hidden. And so the natural response for anything unholy in the presence of holiness is to be afraid. Is to hide. Is to cover up. And this is why I love what A.W. Tozer says. He says we must hide our unholiness in the wounds of Christ. Like, you come to a holy God, you're treading then on holy ground, set apart, pure, and you recognize, no, 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 I am only here because of the finished work of the cross, because of what Jesus did, the perfect holy one, in my place, hanging on the cross, dying for me, covering me now in holiness, so when the holy one eternal sees me, he sees righteousness. He sees my son, my daughter. And so the first way I want us to think about this, the fear of the Lord, is the idea of an x-ray or CT scan. The second way is a picture for me is very personal. It's uh, this idea of surfing. I love to surf. I don't surf as much as I'd like to anymore. Um, But growing up in Santa Cruz and surfing, you quickly understand and recognize this. That to enjoy the beauty, the power, and the majesty of the ocean and to be able to harness the power of the waves and ride them and experience that freedom, you must have a healthy fear of the ocean. See, there's people who have an unhealthy fear. I have a buddy who has an unhealthy fear of the ocean. He will not step foot in the ocean. He's so afraid of sharks and everything else like that. And he's like, no, 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 I'm never going in the ocean. He lives here. He never goes in the ocean. He has this unhealthy fear. And he'll never experience the beauty and the majesty, the power of the ocean and the, the wonder and joy of getting to glide across the wave with, with just such elegance and beauty. I'm sorry, I'm getting lost, but I love it. It's so fun. But then there's the other side. There's the person who has no fear of the ocean, a flippancy. And no fear of the ocean will kill you. When you don't recognize the power of the waves, the strength of the undertow, that that the rip will pull you out. See, this is the picture most often when we understand the fear of the Lord in the Bible is that the almighty, all-powerful, all-good God is beckoning us in, and yet we must recognize who we are in light of who he is. And when we see his, unho- his holiness, we can't help but look in and see who we are, and we confess it, and yet there is this ongoing awe and respect and wonder that allows us to enjoy him at such depths and beauty and grace. And so, part of it, then, is responding in reverence has to do with our physical posture. You notice how the definition ended. 
expressed through a person's physical posture in the presence of the one who's majestic. I like what Matt Redman, a worship leader and songwriter, said about this, the power of our posture. He wrote, when it comes to expressing our worship, what we do on the outside is a key reflection of what's taking place on the inside. Every posture in worship says something of both the worshiper and the one being glorified in. When we face up to the glory of God, we soon find ourselves face down in worship. To worship face down is the ultimate outward sign of inner reverence. See, our physical posture matters. Your physical posture communicates something, doesn't it? If you're in a conversation with someone and they're just like this, it communicates something powerful. Our posture communicates something powerful to others around us and even to ourselves because our posture actually is intricately connected to our hearts. And so as we posture ourselves physically before God, it is actually connecting to our heart's response to God. And so I want to spend a few moments talking about our postures in worship. When we come to worship God, and, and what are these physical postures to take, and how to experience God in reverence in worship. Uh, one of the postures uh, in worship is this whole idea of bowing of your head. It's just we posture ourselves, and maybe you see it when somebody prays, is they just bow their head like this. This is a very simple but significant sign of reverence. In many cultures, the bowing of your head is a sign of reverence to the other, a deference. And it reminds us when we sing or when we pray that we are singing and praying to uh, one who is holy and pure and other. Another posture of worship has to do with just open hands. And sometimes we do this in our services and lead you through a time of prayer. And, and when we just have our hands open like this before us, it's, it, it signifies the idea of either releasing or receiving and so sometimes there's just things in your life, maybe stuff that you walked in, powerful moment of worship. If you walked in with a lot of stuff going on in your life, if you would just take your hands as you worship and open them wide like this and go, okay, God, I'm, I'm releasing those to you. I'm going to, and you begin to just bring those to him. But it also has this significance of receiving, of like, you know what, if your hands are clenched like this and you're constantly going, this is mine, you can't receive from God. And you go, okay, God, I want to receive what you have for me. You can even do that in the beginning of worship where you just go, God, there's something this morning. You brought me here for a reason and for a purpose, and so I want to receive it. Would you speak to me? And we take on the posture of either releasing or receiving. You see, many people, when they worship, they raise their hands. And you're like, okay, what does that mean? What is all that about? And it's this picture of as a child reaches for their parents, so we reach for our perfect heavenly father. And a child reaches for their parent in one of two ways, generally. One, either they're hurting and desperate. Help, save me. Oh, you know, when my kids were really little, they'd run crying from, you know, maybe stub their toe, and they'd reach out to be held. Or when I'd come home, you know, after a long day's work, sometimes it's just a day's work, it doesn't have to be a long day's work, but after a day's work, and I come home and I open the door and the kids are so excited and they reach out and they're like, Dad! And so we reach out to our Heavenly Father signifying, one, either our, our desperate dependency on Him or our absolute delight in Him. 
Heavenly Father, Papa, and you can raise your hands for either one of those reasons. You just go like, I'm just delighting in you. How good, hallelujah, or man, I need you. For some, uh, the response of the joy of the Lord in your life is dancing. Now, it's not, you don't want to see me dance. Um, my kid in the front row just said, yeah. Um, and it's true, it's true. I, I, I have to own it. But this dancing before the Lord, and it said that David danced before the Lord. And, and when, when you're just like overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord, when, when you're just so like thankful for his goodness in your life, when, when you're thinking about that the good hand of God is in your life and upon you, you just can't help but dance, and your body gets moving to it, or like mine doesn't, but yours should. And, and we begin to dance before the Lord. And finally, this idea of kneeling consistently throughout scriptures, the, the response of those who have encountered the Holy One is face down before Him. It is the most significant physical response for us to say to God that you are and I am not. To say to God, you are holy and I recognize I'm on holy ground and so I'm going to get low before you and say, oh my God, I want to meet with you. I recognize my brokenness and my need for you. I come to the Holy King, and by God's grace, by your shed blood on the cross, I come to my perfect Heavenly Father. And I recognize that it is not a casual relationship that I'm coming to, and this is not an everyday conversation, but this is a conversation with my perfect Heavenly Holy Father. So, would you begin to practice these postures in worship. Begin to put them into practice. And they might feel a little foreign or awkward at the beginning, but then you can begin to, as you use them, they'll be powerful tools to, to remind our soul of who you're praying to, who you're singing to. And so Moses recognizes that he's on holy ground and responds in reverence, taking off his shoes. Now listen to what happens next, and I'm just going to give you the cliff notes of it because we don't have time to dive into it. It says, the Lord said, after this moment, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because they're slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. That's just amazing that God's aware of the pain of his people, and then he's doing something about it. So then he says, so now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Moses has this incredible encounter with God on holy ground, this burning bush moment. Here's what you need to hear. It is on holy ground where you receive a holy calling. It is on holy ground where you receive the purposes and the plans of God for your life. True worship always leads to the mission of God. It can't just be like this... Uh, Man, I love this. It's all about me, and I'm going to keep it all to myself. Like when you encounter God, he's going to say, and I have a purpose and a plan, and you're to lead others into worship of me. Notice this. God chose a lonely, old failure wandering in the desert to accomplish his purpose. The minute I said, um, on holy ground, we, we receive a holy calling, you're like, yeah, but not me. And Moses would say the exact same thing. And for some, you're holy calling, you're like, I'm too old. Moses was 80. If you're not dead, God's not done with you. 
And for some, I'm too young. You're never too young. God used teenagers time and time again. I wish I had time to unpack all the teenagers that he used to be world changes and accomplish his purpose on this planet. Now, I want you to see this. There's a predictable pattern when we worship God that, is, that he's bringing us through. It is this pattern that he begins to work and develop in us. And you see it in the Old Testament, you see it in the New Testament. That we'd look up and see God for who he is. That we'd recognize that we're on holy ground. Then then we'd look in and we'd respond in reverence. That's accompanied by confession like, you're God, I'm not. I'm unholy. God, would you cleanse me and purify me? And then we'd look out and begin to join him in his redemptive plan on this planet. The way the Apostle Peter said it, this, he said, said it this way. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Did you know that? That's how God thinks of you. He said, I chose you, your royalty. Don't ever think less of yourself, your royalty. You're a holy nation set apart, designed You're my special possession. I delight in you. Why? And here's your purpose, that you may declare the praises. That's a worship term. You just may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. God doesn't need your help, but he sure loves it, and he wants you. It takes the pressure off. He's not like somehow you have to be the fulfillment of all the plans that God does on this earth. He says, I don't need your help. I'm God. I'm I'm capable. But I delight in using you and partnering with you. The other day, my son and I were uh, building out this grill uh, platform for our barbecue pit. And we had to lay these cement pavers and and level the ground, and originally it was kind of at an angle, and it would just kind of roll off when we cooked, and it wasn't. Now, I didn't need my son's help to do the job. I know how to level it and bring all those things out, but I sure loved getting him to help. We had the best time, and it was just this moment of a father-son working together, enjoying this space, and like teaching them all these sort of things, God's just asking you, your perfect Heavenly Father, would you join me in what I'm doing in the world? He's going, I want, I want you to be a part of it. It's such a delight. I don't want you to miss out on all of this. It's on holy ground where we see a holy calling. As we close this morning, I want to lead us into a moment of practicing the presence of God, of actually doing what we're talking about. And so I'm going to ask us to actually take the posture of kneeling and if you wouldn't mind, go ahead and get on your knees, and you can turn and face the other direction. So you, there, and I know if you're not physically able, don't worry about it. And if you're kind of a little taller on the taller spectrum, you might want to get into the aisle way. But I just want to lead you through the looking up and looking in, and then looking out as we as we close this morning. you take a moment and look up and see God for who he is, that he's high, that he's holy, 
He's completely other. He's righteous. He's pure. He's all-knowing, all-wise, all-good. The heavens declare the glory of the Lord. He is majestic in holiness. The angels right now are crying before the throne of God, holy, holy, holy. There is none and no one like you, God. And in light of who you are in your holiness, would you look in? Allow God's holiness to, to be that x-ray machine. Allow the great physician to, to single out areas in your life that need healing. Areas in your life that need wholeness. Things that you need to confess. Where you would say, Spirit of God, would you come and search my heart? Show me anything in you, in me, that's not of you. Spirit of God, would you search my heart? Would you show me anything that's in me that's not of you? And he'll show you. He'll be specific. He won't be general. It might be the way you talk to that friend. It might be a thought pattern. It might be a habit that you've embraced. It might be the way you're going about your work. And just confess it. First John 1 9 says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and he'll forgive us and purify us from all unrighteousness. As we look up and then look in, would you look out? And see God and what he's doing on this planet. Would you, would you look out and say to God, here I am. As so many who've encountered God, they would just say, here I am. Use me as you see fit. Use me as you see fit. And for some in this moment, God is going to birth a vision for your neighborhood, a vision for your workplace, a vision for your life, a vision for your campus. And you just say, Hey, God, you just use me as you see fit. I, I'm yours. Here I am. 